Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm in a trunk. My own trunk in my own stolen car. I can't see anything. I don't know how to unlock the door from the inside. I can't seem to kick it out. But I can hear my captors over the roar of the engine and the screech of the tarmac. And I remember what the company guidance told us during the two-day workshop on self-defense and mitigation efforts in case of kidnapping and or ritual sacrifice. Listen to everything they say, in case it's something that the authorities can use to find you. From here, it sounds like they're... They just killed the man. Squabbling? He knew who we were. He'd been going through our bag. I was looking out for us. You're the one who was... was chattering away to some policeman. Oh, don't try me. That's not why you hallowed the poor bastard. You did it. Because for all of your piety and your balking airs, you're a... You're a frothing fanatic, just like the rest of them, and that makes you reckless. You and I are meant to be on the same side, Carpenter. But it seems to me, like whenever it comes to taking action, whenever it comes to striking a blow against the enemies of our faith, your preference is to stand back with a faint sneer on your face. Sure, just like the one you're giving me right now. You want to be able to claim your place in our faith while keeping yourself distant from everything that means. And that doesn't make you better than me. Baiting flesh, it does not. It makes you a coward. Pull over at that verge. We'll get the girl out of the boot. I can sit in the back, keep an eye on her so she doesn't try anything. What? Think it'll be less suspicious if we're stopped? No, I'm just sick of talking to you. Hopefully she'll make for better company. Carpenter, I think it's only fair you should know the truth. The Catabasian Mason asked me to accompany you on this mission for precisely this reason. In all honesty, he believed you might be straying from our path. It was his opinion that we might no longer be able to trust you that you needed someone steadfast alongside you to keep an eye on you. He told me I might need to go to the police. That's a lie. A lie. Mason told me to take you with me, because nobody else wanted you. Nobody wanted to have to swaddle you, comfort you, clean up after you. 
I've been building this faith back up to something worth anything with the best of them in the ditches and the rotting cellars for the past 13 years. My Nana Glass kept the fires burning when nobody else would dare to try. When our God had nobody to whisper his name in the silent places. And you, a child with no sense and no talent. You think you can tell me how I'm seen? You have the gall to tell me I haven't earned the trust of Mason and the Catabasians and the rest of them. That I haven't given everything to this. I, I have talent. Oh, I'd say fucking up is more your vocation than your talent, isn't it? You cannot begin to understand what I've done to get to this point, Carpenter. You don't know what I'm capable of, and you do not want to test whether our God loves you more than he loves me. Because I can see you flinch away from him every time you think he might be drifting close. You didn't interest me before, Faulkner. You certainly don't frighten me now. What are you- Get in. What did you say your name was? Paige? I'm sorry if things are awkward in the car, Paige. That's alright. My colleague and I are having some compatibility issues. I see. And obviously you can't contribute much to the conversation since you are a hostage. I actually attended a workplace seminar on conflict mediation once. I don't know if- No need to trouble yourself, Paige. Okay. That's the turning up ahead. No cars on the road behind us. I'd say we're safe to go in. I'm sure you know best. It's like they're... sulking. These renegades who've kidnapped me and hijacked my car. Like I'm eight years old again and sitting in the back seat as my mom and dad snipe at each other over the sound of the radio. I almost want to laugh. And now, as we pull up in front of a house, a thick pair of iron gates half buried in the winding grass, they still refuse to meet one another's eye. Through the twisted bars of the gates, you can just make out a dirt track rolling onwards. A painted sign hangs by the entrance. 113 Longray Mansions. And beyond that, the battered and sunken roof of a dilapidated bungalow. Looks quiet. Could be. I'm gonna take a look around inside. You. Wait here with the girl. And you! Oh, you better not try anything with my friend here. He can't be swayed from his sense of duty, you know. He can't be bargained with. He's steadfast in his faith. Like a really thick rock. You've got ten minutes. Then I'm coming in after you. Mm. So, what's in there, exactly? You might as well tell me. You're probably going to kill me anyway, aren't you? Are you robbing the place? This is a company car, honestly. You can take it if you like. I'm very happy to walk if you let me go. 
You shouldn't say that. Which part? Talking about how we're gonna kill you anyway. Gods, I don't know that, and I don't want to know that. But I don't want to promise anything to you either about how it's all going to be fine. Because who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what kind of sacrifice might be demanded of us when we set foot in this place? Did you ever think that you might have been brought to us for a reason? You're right. How unfair of me. This place belonged to a disciple. A fellow of the faith. We're looking for someone who called up a miracle further down river, and we're thinking it might have been him. Okay, so you and your friend... We're not friends. Right. So you and your colleague, you're looking for this man. It looks like he's long gone. They say there were radiant churches up and down the river's edge a generation ago. Bright and alive with marsh lanterns and laughter. And when the trawler man brought you his truth and offerings returned... He gazed upon it together. Now we're scrapping in ruins. Chasing shades. She's been doing this for thirteen years, she tells me. And we're still scattered. And we're still no closer to the river's rise. And she wants to hold that over me. When I joined this church, when I first came to it, alone in my hour of need, I thought that was it for me. I'd be among people who would truly know me. People who would truly understand me. Instead, it's more of this. More of her. And I'm still alone out here. It's hard, isn't it? It takes long enough figuring out how to live with yourself, and then you have to figure out how to live with others. That's from a three-day corporate cohesion workshop. I go on a lot of these. Are you thinking I'll let you go if you talk to me kindly enough? It'd be a happy outcome, but I think I'm mostly just talking because I'm nervous. That's fine. You can keep talking. I don't mind. Unlike some. And here she comes now. The crow is back, limping out along the gravel track. She squeezes through the iron gates, glancing once back behind her. My companion in the driver's seat frowns. His foot revs softly on the accelerator, just for a second, his hand briefly lingering over the handbrake, as if he's considering something dramatic. Then she swings the gates wide, gesturing at us to come on through, and we roll on in. There's... Something watching us from over the tall grass. A great eyeless sculpture, a rounded mass of polished brass upon six towering stilt legs, set into the ground some distance across the fields, wobbling softly as the wind carries it, but remaining upright. To my right, a moment later, I spot another, and another, silhouetted in the distance. Each piece twisted and shaped differently, but always the same construction. Six tall spider legs, one shapeless, twisted form at the top. Like variations on a theme. Or, more likely, given the shattered, legless statuary that appears piled up at intervals along the track, 
we're looking at frustrated efforts towards a single state of completion. The bungalow, as it comes fully into view over the horizon, is even stranger. Because it too is on legs. Four thick wooden stilts rising high over the reeds below, with a rickety ladder leading up to the front door. The wood of the stilts looks warped. A glittering tide of limpets clings to the base, swarming upwards, a motion frozen in flight. We're deep in the floodplain, wherever we are now. Well, it's definitely the right place. There's marks of protection daubed across the thresholds. Come on, let's take a look around. Um, I don't need to go, do I? You could just handcuff me to the steering wheel or something. Well, I hope you brought your own handcuffs, because we're pretty bloody lightly equipped as far as that goes. I just feel very strongly that if you're going to murder me and bury me out in the reeds, I'd rather not go willingly. If that's okay with you. I mean, again, the question there would be, did you bring your own shovel? Because I'm not digging by hand. Just leave her alone. We just want to take a look inside the house, that's all. I promise we're not going to hurt you. Oh, he's all softness, isn't he? wonder what revelation brought that on. Mind yourself on the ladder now. The rungs are blackened with silt, slippery with the residue of a thousand rolling high tides. Something with many legs scuttles away as I place my hand gingerly up, test my weight, and begin to climb. Light floods into the bungalow as my companions and I shuffle forward over the threshold. Tall paintings in smaller frames hang from the walls and rest in a heap across the kitchen table, all of them depicting the same base concept. Rising tides of black ink, moving from the bottom of the canvas upwards, swallowing murky watercolor landscapes and unhappy human portraits alike. Spider-legged sculptures of copper and limestone crouch in the murky corners and watch us from above the rotting kitchen cabinets. Garbage is littered across the floor of the room. Pots of inks and withered brushes. It stinks in here. Looks abandoned. Not necessarily. Some folks get deep enough into their gods, they start to forget about taking care of anything else. Check the tops in the sink. Mmm, came easy, didn't it? Someone was here recently. I think so, yes. Come on, let's check out the other rooms. There's a painting in the corridor. Unlike the others, it's clearly finished. Neatly hung and contained in a simple wooden frame. A silver-haired, long-faced man. His eyes rolling over white. His mouth wide open in an expression of shock or sudden understanding. The black tide of ink is seeping comfortingly up around his throat. A pair of crawling crab legs are emerging tentatively from his open mouth. As I pass it, I have the uncomfortable sensation that I'm looking at the bungalow owner's one and only self-portrait. 
Carpenter! It's a tape recorder. Maybe we shouldn't touch it. What? You think it's an exploding tape recorder? You don't think it's strange, just left in the middle of the room like this. No, you're... you're right. It feels like an invitation. Well, to hell with it. Or perhaps a sermon. It, it's him. Yes, I think it's best if you consider it a sermon. It's Rogue. He's the I one I was to told about. Yourself. The one we've been looking for out here. To I know, I know. Just listen. Try to answer me honestly now, intruder. Do you recall when you were last happy? Truly happy for longer than a passing instant? Myself, I cannot, and I remember even as an infant feeling unable to recall a precise time when I had been truly, lastingly happy. And yet it must have existed once, mustn't it, this state of prior happiness? Otherwise, how would we know that we're looking for it? I've always felt this way, that happiness appears in our minds fully formed, as a place we remember, a grand house whose corridors we must once surely have walked long ago, but which remains utterly alien to us in our experience, as if the very idea of it was implanted in us by some meddling dabbler or whispered into our ears by a diabolical voice. But I find that stating as much to other people on the street or in coffee bars causes first confusion, then distress, then a desire to move away from me at all costs. Paint the world as you see it, they said, when I first picked up my sketching pad and began to draw. Well, I painted this world in drowning hues of violet and black, and they told me that was wrong. I'd put people off. There was no audience for what I was creating. My sensibilities were too cruel and too cold for anyone to truly enjoy. Create for your own self, they told me. So I locked my study door and I painted what I knew the world to be, and I took lonely pleasure in it. No, no, they said when they came knocking the next day. You have to put yourself out there, Rogue. What's the use of a voice if it goes unheard? But my would-be collaborators flinched away from me, and the creative houses shut their doors to the visions I had to offer. I can accomplish nothing alone. That's the truth. But there's no consolation to be had in other people. We are uniquely unhappy, I believe, because we are uniquely unfinished. This is the ultimate pain of our condition, and no god can relieve it, whatever promises they make to us. The older one, Carpenter, is leaning by the windowsill, staring out over the empty floodplain fields. Faulkner is on his knees, his eyes tightly shut in devotion. This is probably when I should try to escape, isn't it? ...that we are, because we cannot progress and we cannot retreat. So then, what's left to us? Lost as we are in this dreadful landscape... Caught at the way station upon the endless road of ourselves, unable to go forwards, unable to go back. Even if we could go forwards, we do not know what would be waiting for us there. The only certainty is what lies behind, and thus the only safe move is to retreat back into the depths of ourselves. I have always gazed upon the nomad barnacles and grey lobsters of the city canals with an unhappy, itching envy. I have waded into the polluted waters myself to chart their pointless and erratic movements this way and that way, 
longing to achieve their skittering clarity of purpose. Since my very childhood, my muse has whispered to me in the lonely places of the need to turn back the tide within myself. At first I sought to embody this message through my own furious action, in vain. When, as a young child, I went out to the pond in our local park and buried my head beneath the surface of the water, seeking communion with the things that lived beneath, seeking to return myself to the depths, it was my parents who caught me. They dragged me back up and out before the last air bubbles had fled from my throat. They told me something must be wrong. Not with our mutual condition, mind you, but with me personally. The call of it. So, I stopped trying to live what I believed. And I painted, instead. Oh, I feel like we should be writing this down. This could be a part of the new scripture. A fresh chapter of the verses. I hope they cut down on the guff. The classic parables are a little more to the point, that's all I'm saying. From this angle, I can see the river again. A black and turgid shape amongst the drifting reeds. A small dirt path cuts through the tall grass below. The black silhouettes of three tall spider crab statues loom by a broken wooden jetty overlooking the water. There's a rowboat bound to the post down there, bobbing softly in the currents. This could be something, I think. But the more I painted the swirls and shapes of the skittering things that walked upon the tide line, the more clearly I began to understand them. That there was a pattern in the marks they left behind in the mud with their churning pincer legs, in the cracks upon their moss-coated carapaces. My muse of the prior happiness, like any god that walked above the water, had a language all of its own. And the more closely I drew that language, the closer it drew to me. I'd swear, at certain times when things went right, when I whispered the correct words and I daubed the shapes well enough, I could feel its breath upon the back of my neck. I began to slip these signs, these marks of the muse, into my paintings wherever I could, into commission sketches and family portraits, and I delighted in handing them over to my clients to hang in their living rooms never once realising just what they were letting into their stuffy and tedious domestic lives. Further to that, I have made an infrequent but pleasurable habit across the course of my life of using the power of this secret language to take my revenge on those who have doubted my way of seeing things. Those who could not appreciate the paintings I had made but were too embarrassed not to accept a gift when I offered it to them. I'd read in the newspaper that such and such a curator had drowned, or such and such an art critic had mysteriously vanished, and I'd smile and sip at my coffee with the happy thought that my work had made a connection with someone. But there were always more of these enemies waiting to strike against me, I found, so long as I kept living. And the prior happiness of the crawling things continued to elude me. In the end, I understood that I had to flee for I could not drown the world in its entirety, and this was fast becoming the only acceptable option left to me. I had read that there were others once in the west of the peninsula who thought as I did. A lost faith, a dark faith, a hated purpose. A longing to be engulfed and reshaped and returned to prior forms. 
drove out to the river where these people had once congregated. I purchased this old place with the last of my money. I found myself bitterly disappointed. The parish, as the locals called it, had all but vanished from these territories. Its disciples had fled into the hills or died, and what scraps of the faith remained were not the truth as I saw it. There were primitive aspects to it, calling upon a kind of fishing deity as avatar of the waters, who did not resemble the many-legged news which had spoken to me. I could not claim kinship with these witness worshippers, although their marks and their outcomes appeared crudely similar to my own. And the river itself I found dull and lifeless. Blasphemy! Let him talk. Worse yet, my inquiries and tentative, strictly experimental efforts at sacrifice were enough to draw the attention of a number of locals in the town of Marcel's Crossing, who came to understand me as something both unwelcome and, in a more fundamental sense, to be rejoiced at. A reminder of their ancestors' bygone battles with the parish. A fresh outcast to be persecuted. Day after day, with rising frequency and intensity, I suffered harm to myself. Humiliation. I purchased dogs to drive away the intruders, but these poor dumb creatures became merely another weapon for my tormentors to harm me with. Soon, I could no longer keep a light on in my own house without drawing their attention. And so I retreated, as I have always done. I left the bungalow locked, abandoned the car out upon the roads, gave every impression that I had fled from my persecutors. And for days and nights, and eventually weeks, I lived amongst the reeds of the river, muddied and soiled, catching the crabs in my bare hands, letting them scratch and nip at me, breaking their shells open to devour their soft flesh, willing myself to shed my sorrow and revert at last to the prior happiness of the crawling things. But I did not. My muse did not answer me, although its insects bittered me and its mud choked my gullet. As I shivered, alone in the cold, I began to consider that I had made a mistake in coming to this place. And then, one night, as I slept in the cold mud amongst the rushes, everything changed. My grandest vision came to me in my sweating and tumultuous dreams, in the gentle gurgling rush of the dark waters around my slumbering form, in the trails of water running down my brow and down my cheeks. I had been grossly mistaken. My muse had something to show me here, now that I had the eyes to see it. The final revelation. A dream of swarming and feasting things that came upon me as I lay at the water's edge, tearing flesh and skin rapturously asunder. And as they withdrew from me, they left only bones, and those bones were more in number than could belong to any one man, and those bones shifted and crawled across the mud, forming themselves into a pattern, into a mark which I did not recognise, but which was instantly familiar. And as I gazed upon them, I heard bells ringing out in awful celebration. I knew as soon as I woke what I had seen in my dream, what I had borne witness to. The last word of the secret language which I had been called upon to share with an unwilling world. A way of turning back the tide for all of us. 
as I lay in the mud, I traced its shape on the morning air. I practiced its movements back and forth, back and forth, with a finger drawn like an empty paintbrush, and I felt the thrilling power of its potential. But I did not draw my secret word. I did not complete it. Not yet. Because once I touched ink to paper, once I marked charcoal to wood and finished the shape I had been shown, I knew I would bring the truth of the vision down upon myself. And, so I rationalised, there are so many others across the face of this earth who should discover that shape of crawling certainty, that great and lasting prior happiness within themselves, besides just me. What's the use of a voice if it goes unheard? And even though everything had changed, even though nothing was what it had been, and even though I was alive with fire and eagerness to begin, I committed myself once more to patience. I continued to live amongst the reeds. I nested amongst the crawling things, swallowing them as I liked, letting them feed off me as they liked. I dreamt of what's to come for us all once we roll back the tide within ourselves. And I prepared myself for my life's great and final purpose, my return to the prior happiness. I simply needed to find the right place to make my mark. Not Marcel's crossing to the south, ungrateful and spiteful as it is. Somewhere that was new to me, where bells ring on the dawn. Moderately inhuman, since I was, I could not rely upon my own resources to find the right location. Fortunately, the fishermen have maps and charts, and they gossip about the towns and villages they have visited or refuse to visit for whatever reasons. I became their nightmare thief as I swam silently through the water, clambering up onto their keys and jetties, stealing into their cabins, eavesdropping unseen upon their conversations. This is incredible. Whenever I this was a self-made faith. The troll man spoke with him direct, like like me. I know, I heard him. Eventually, my patience was rewarded. One cool dusk, as I slipped through the waters beside an idling pair of anglers in their coracle, I learnt of the very place I'd been dreaming of. The perfect canvas for my final design. There's a town to the north, one angler told his friend as they waited and idled by their nets. A town by the name of Bellwethers. A small, quiet place upon the borderlands. And we've been led right to it. What he said right there. It's the mark of the wither tide, just as it was written. This is our chance, Carpenter. This is how we fight back. We need to find this town. Just listen for a moment, would you? A pretty place, the angler told his friend, with a tall clock tower and bells that ring out upon the hour. And I'll be going up there someday soon with a girl who thinks kindly of me. And I'll take her to listen to the bells and hope she kisses me. Bells, I thought, and I felt as enchanted as the angler did when he thought of his sweetheart. Bells. Just as I dreamt of them. And so I am here again, back in my old bungalow. This morning is a day like any other. A grey and fog-swallow day upon the endless rolling floodplains, and I have been reborn. For it is the morning I set off upon my great and final journey. I have cleaned the mud from my skin, 
dressed in my old, mildewed but still presentable, still human clothes. I have assembled my inks, the full range, neatly ordered in their pots. I have cleaned my brushes, purified them. I already know the car I'm going to steal. And I will leave one final work of art for my friends in Marcel's Crossing. A small and wicked work for those who hated me. A taste of what's to come in Bellwethers when I arrive. But you know this, don't you? Unless you stumbled into this bungalow by chance, you've come from there already. Some detective or investigator who's seen what Augustus Roke grew. And you've come to my old home now in search of answers. If that's true, if you come from Bellwethers, I hope it was as beautiful to you as it will be to me. And if you can't understand where I've got to, well, perhaps you never will. I'm sure you thought this was too good to be true, didn't you? A murderous heretic's confession, caught on tape, left for you to find such a convenience. Stories are snares, someone told me once, and mine has been tightening all this while. By now, I imagine, my sentinel will have caught your scent. It will have woken from its slumbering place by the water. I was so hurt, you understand, when those thugs from the town came to my house in search of violence. When they butchered my poor dogs, my gentle pets, since they could not find and kill me. I was so inspired, so reassured, when my muse breathed life back into the carcasses I laid to rest down in the mud of the low tide. Can you hear it coming for you? Intruder. If you're from the police, I regret that you could not have chosen a kindlier profession. And if you're from Marcel's Crossing, die slow, I beseech you. Get on your feet, Faulkner. You, Paige, check the other window. I want to know what you can see out there. Like what? Anything! Nothing on this side! Nothing moving here, either. Okay, let's... But... There were three statues down by the riverside before. I'm sorry? Three statues. I counted them. Now there's only two. What do you mean there's... Is there... Something on the roof? It's not on the roof. It's walking over the house. We stand there, uncertain of ourselves, gazing upwards. And then the leg comes through the roof. A vast pink chitinous pincer crashes down through the ceiling, splitting the tape recorder in two as it lands, the thing's vast leg driving through the floorboards and making the entire bungalow shiver as it strikes the ground far below. And then the leg rises up again, slowly retreating back through the roof and out of view. And as it ascends, I can see the bristles of river water glistening across its armor. Smaller, frenzied crabs swarming back and forth across its surface like workers. The light from outside is eclipsed as a vast, ungainly head peers in through the window. It has its own eyes set on stalks, but the twisted snouts and pleading stares of dogs can be seen here and there across its shell. It's looking at us. Back into the house! 
we turn and run. Behind us, we hear the colossal pincer leg come slicing through the window, shattering glass, striking at nothing but floorboards. The bungalow tips and tilts, and we stumble and turn. The self-portrait in the corridor goes crashing to the floor as we dash past it back into the kitchen. All right. What now? Carpenter? How the hell should I know? You always seem to know what you're doing. Faulkner, I have never once known what I am doing. Maybe... Maybe it won't hurt us. The river angels serve the trawler man in his garden below, don't they? It might recognize us as the fellow faithful if we step out to meet it. Oh, grand. You go first. I didn't think so. Look, that thing's between us and the car. We need to, uh, lure it back to the river somehow. Paige, any ideas? I'm your hostage. So listen to me when I tell you that this is an open forum. Carpenter, I'm telling you, this is an angel of the faith. And I'm telling you, I don't want to hear it, Faulkner. You both stay here and keep an eye on it. I'll go around the back, see if there's another safe way down. He looks at me, the young one, Faulkner, like he's been slapped. Don't say anything to her. Please. He grabs a set of ink pots from the kitchen cabinet, snatches up a brush and an abandoned, empty canvas. He begins to draw in neat, flourishing strokes. It's an ornate, complex sigil. A prayer mark. Once he's done, he begins to daub the same mark across his skin, over his forearms, on the palms of his hands. He looks up at me and beams. It thinks we're intruders. It doesn't realize we're friends. That's the problem. So... We need to make sure we're speaking the same language. Wait up here. I'm going to try and clear a way for us. You think that's going to work? I have a god that listens to me. I know that. Even if she doesn't. As he hefts the canvas upwards, the taps begin to creak in the sink. The pipes begin to knock as if the water is straining from within. Faulkner glances back, as if acknowledging the sound, and then he opens the door and steps out into the sunlight. No joy on another way out, but there are some bed sheets in the linen. Where is he? I... um... Oh, come on! She rushes to the bungalow door, flings it open and the two of us stare down at the tiny figure below, walking back out along the dirt track, a painted canvas held aloft over its head. Beyond, the sentinel is striding back and forth on its six tall stilt legs, pacing through the grass, probing curiously at the shape of my car. It turns, and it begins to advance. Run, you fool! Just drop everything and run! 
He doesn't run. Just keeps walking out to meet it. I come to you in a spirit of fellowship. The sentinel is almost upon him, kicking up great clouds of dust as it charges. Its foreleg is lifted as if to skewer him. Then, incredibly, it stops in its tracks, almost skidding in a clatter of limbs right before the tiny figure of Faulkner. It seems to stoop, gazing down at the mark daubed across the canvas for a single agonizing moment. And then it crouches, or perhaps kneels, folding those long pincer limbs in upon themselves in a spectacularly ungainly fashion, settling its vast body in the dust of the track. Faulkner stands his ground. He turns his head very slightly back towards us, but says nothing. Well, I'll be fucked. All right, get down the ladder. Fast as you can. Go on now. When we reach the ground, the two figures ahead of us still haven't moved. Neither of them. We race up the dirt track towards them. The sentinel is breathing softly as it kneels in the dust ahead of us, its carapace gently shifting up and down over twisted flesh. Its stock eyes are fixed upon the canvas in Faulkner's hands. Its mandibles clack peaceably. Faulkner is sweating but standing firm. It's only when we're right upon them that he finally allows himself to glance away from the kneeling monstrosity, looking back at us with a flushed but genuine smile, as if to say, See? I told you so. This is a mistake. He fumbles the canvas. It slips in his hands, and he tries to catch it. And then it falls. Hits the dust face down. Go, go, go! The sentinel's foreleg swings out. It catches Faulkner in the chest in a single swift motion. He goes flying back into the dust. And then the vast thing is attempting to rise before us, flailing furiously, its legs toppling against one another. I've got him! Just go! Get to the car! You need to drive. I'll try and staunch the bleeding. But I... I don't have time to threaten you, Paige. Just get in there and drive. So I drive. My foot on the accelerator as behind us the sentinel gets to its feet and begins to advance in great loping steps. We skid, the car wheeling about in the dust and my two passengers toppling to one side in the back seat. And then we blast through the gates and out onto the road, and the horrible thing comes to an abrupt halt behind us at the boundary line, staring after us and clacking its jaws angrily in the air. Carpenter, I- I'm sorry. Just try to stay still. Drown me and drag me, but you did all right, Faulkner. You did all right back there. These were the Silthverses, and now, fleeing the scene, these were our disciples, 
in order of their arrival. Lucille Valentine, Maeve de Bruyne, B. Nahr, and John Ware. Written by John Ware and produced by Mona Hassan. Audio production by Sammy Holden. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.